If you have your Bibles, please open them up this morning to Romans chapter 1, and we're going to be looking this morning at verse 18 and following. If you're new this morning, welcome to Oakton Baptist. My name is Timon Benson. I'm the lead and teaching pastor here at Oakton. And one of the things we do at Oakton Baptist Church is we teach systematically through the Bible. And the thing that that does for us is that that means that sometimes we have to deal with hard topics, that sometimes there are unpleasant things or hard topics that the Bible teaches us about. And if you teach systematically through the Bible, you can't ignore those hard topics. And so we come to a passage this morning, which is a very sobering passage. So let's read the passage together. Look down in your Bibles, Romans 1 verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and his divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honour him as God or give thanks to him, but became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their heart to impurity, to the dishonouring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason God gave them up to dishonourable passions, For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise exchanged natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice, They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They're gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, not only do they do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. As I said, this is a very serious piece of God's Word and I need prayer and we need prayer as we come to study this piece. So let's, let's pray together. Father, we thank you that all your truth is inspired and it is profitable. And even though our hard hearts can't accept your truth often and can't comprehend it, I pray that right now that you would pierce our hearts with the truth and with the weight of this passage and change us, Father, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. About three months ago, I was in my office on Sunday morning and I got a desperate call. It was about 9.15 and the service was due to start at 10 o'clock. And it was my daughter, Hannah, of all people. And she blurted out these words. 
I don't know what's going on. You have to come home. Mum has called an ambulance and she thinks that she is having a heart attack. Well, as you can imagine, I was shocked. And so I rushed out of my office. I quickly, on the way, called Les Crawford. Les is one of our elders at the church. And I asked him to fill in for me on Sunday morning. Well, as I pulled up to our house, the ambulance was arriving at the same time. And I rushed inside. Tegan was in our bedroom, gripping her chest and lying on our bed in pain. The ambulance rushed into the house and they started doing their thing. They did all sorts of tests upon her. And at that time, they concluded that she was not having a heart attack. But our medical professionals, they're very good. And because they didn't want to make an incorrect diagnosis, they took her to Mobbury Hospital where she stayed for a number of days and she went through a number of tests. Now, fortunately, she is fine, just to let you know. They didn't quite find out what was going on, but she is fine and doing well, so we are thankful to God. But here's the thing. The ambulance insisted on taking her to hospital, even though they did not think she had a heart attack. And why was that? It was because they didn't want to get the diagnosis wrong. It was too important to get wrong. They knew that if they got the diagnosis wrong and they left her at home, she might have another heart attack and die. You see, they knew the importance of the right diagnosis. In the passage that was just read out, Paul diagnoses the problem for all humanity. And it's not a nice diagnosis, is it? It wasn't a nice diagnosis. But would you really go to a doctor who just told you that you wanted what you wanted to hear? Would you go to a doctor that while you were having a heart attack would pat you on the back and say, you're just having indigestion, go home? Because ignorance might be bliss, but it can also kill you if you get the diagnosis wrong. And many people in the Christian church today are getting the diagnosis wrong. As I said last week, we have people who are saying that the problem with humanity is a damaged self-esteem and so we have the therapeutic gospel. Or people are saying that the problem with humanity is that we aren't living out the blessed life so we have the prosperity gospel. Or people are saying that the problem is that when we die we need to go to heaven and so we have the escapist gospel. But what is the problem that Paul diagnoses humanity with? What is his diagnosis of the human condition? You see, to understand the gospel, we need to understand the diagnosis. It doesn't matter if you are a Christian here today or someone who doesn't necessarily call themselves a Christian. We all need to understand the true condition of humanity. For the Christian, understanding the diagnosis of the human condition will ignite worship again in your heart as you realize how great the cure is. And for the person who is not a Christian here today, my prayer is that you will run to the only place where you can receive a cure. So today, in this passage, we're going to look at Paul's diagnosis of the human condition. Then we're going to look at the devastating consequences of the human condition. Then we're going to look at the only hope for the human condition. Now, your notes this week actually are correct and they follow up and they line up so you can take notes this week because they actually follow up. So, so praise God for that. Well, to introduce 
uh, Paul's diagnosis of the human condition, I want to summarize Paul's argument by having a conversation with him, all right? So in verse 16, Paul says this. He says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. And you might say, why not, Paul? Why aren't you ashamed of the gospel? And he would answer to you in verse 16, because it is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. And you might say, well, how is that so, Paul? And he would say in verse 17, he would say, because in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness by faith. And you might say to Paul, but why, Paul, is a righteousness necessary? And he would say in verse 18, because the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men. You see, Paul says that the problem for humanity is that they are under the wrath of God, that they are under the judgment of God, that God is angry with all humanity. Now, you might say, well, there you go, Timon. Just as I thought, all you Christians want to talk about is the fact that God is angry. All you want to talk about is the wrath of God. All you have is an angry God. Well, the reason that many of us think that way is because we don't understand the wrath of God. I want to make three things clear about the wrath of God. First, God's anger or wrath is not out of control rage. When we think of someone angry, we tend to think of them out of control. But God's anger, his wrath is not like that. Charles Swindoll in his commentary on Romans writes, the wrath of God is not the kind of bellowing anger that we have come to associate with abusive people. God's anger is not out of control rage. Second, God's wrath is an expression of his love. You see, the reason that we struggle with the wrath of God is because of our culture. I was once listening to Tim Keller a while back and he was doing these lectures at the University of Berkeley and you can go online if you want to listen to them. Just Google Tim Keller, University of Berkeley. And in the question and answer time, a young man I think, express the opinion that many people have concerning God. He said this, he said, I don't believe in God, but if there is a God, then he's probably a God of love, so I'm not all that worried. You see, most of us believe that if there is a God, then he's a God of love, and what we mean by that is that God is this passive, grandfatherly type who accepts all people no matter what they do or who they are. But the reason that we believe this is because we have been raised in the suburbs of Australia. Mikoslav Volf, a Croatian who's seen violence in the Balkans, wrote these words concerning that concept of God. Listen to this. He says, In a sun-scorched land, soaked in the blood of the innocent, it will invariably die with the other pleasant captivities of a liberal mind. You see, if you and I lived in a country where we saw our wives raped, where we saw our children killed, if we saw our homes burned to the ground, we would want to believe in a God of justice, a God whose wrath rises up against all the ungodliness and wickedness of men because that would tell us that he loves us. You see, for God to be a God of love, he must be a God who gets angry at those things that harm his good creation. If he did not get angry, it would show that he doesn't really care. However, my problem and your problem is that if God gets angry at all the injustice, 
all the evil that's in the world, then to be fair, he must get angry at all the injustice and evil that he sees in my heart and in your heart. And finally, the third thing I want you to know about God's wrath is that God is angry with the sinner and he loves the sinner. You see, many of us have been raised with that old Christian cliche that goes like this. God loves the sinner but hates the sin. Have you heard that old Christian cliche? All right, it's very dangerous to build your theology on Christian cliches. At first glance, it might seem that this is what this passage is teaching. Look in verse 18 again. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all the ungodliness and wickedness of men. You see? You might say, look, the wrath is against all the ungodliness and wickedness. But then, notice the next word in the sentence. Who? That word makes it personal. That relates the anger of God to people. You see, God is angry at people because of their wickedness and ungodliness. And we as people are no different. Let's just say you had a brother and you love your brother, but he's a very troubled individual. And he comes to stay at your home after he's stayed at all your siblings' homes. And he eats all your food, he uses your toothbrush, and one day you come home and he sold your plasma TV on eBay so that he can buy some drugs. Now, how are you going to feel towards your brother? When he walks in the door, are you going to pat him on the back and say, I love you, brother, but I hate what you do? No. You're going to be angry with your brother. And you have reasons to be angry. He stole your TV and he used your toothbrush. How gross. And there are going to be consequences for your brother. But here's the thing. While you're angry with your brother, in the deepest core of your being, you still love your brother. He's your brother. And that's why you're so angry with your brother. If he didn't mean anything to you, you'd just call the police, kick him out on the street, and it wouldn't matter. And the same is true with God. God is angry with us because of the way we have treated him and because he loves us. God created human beings to be the crown jewel of his creation. Human beings were created in the image of God to love God and enjoy him forever. But because of our wickedness and unrighteousness, we are under his wrath. He is angry with us and how we have fallen. However, Charles Price points out something even more sobering about this passage. I'm going to tell you here today that it's going to get very low in this room, really low, and we need to get low. Charles Price points out in this paragraph for humanity that the problem in here is not that God is angry. Do you know what the problem in this paragraph is? God has a reason to be angry. The problem is not just that God is angry. The problem is that God has a reason to be angry. And there are three reasons in this passage why God is angry. The first one is found in verses 19 and 20. Look in your Bibles in verse 19 and 20. Paul says this, For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so that man is without excuse. You see, Paul says the problem for humanity is not that we don't know, that we are ignorant, but rather the problem is that we are disobedient. 
Paul says that everyone in this room is without excuse. See, look down in verse 19. He says, For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. Paul says that the fingerprints of God are over all creation. That creation demonstrates that he exists and that he is real. Abraham Lincoln once wrote this. He said, I never gaze up at the stars without a feeling that I'm looking into the face of God. I can see how it might be possible for a person to be an atheist if they gaze down at the world, but I cannot conceive how someone can be an atheist when they look up in the sky. You see, Paul's argument is that creation reveals that there is a creator so that people are without excuse. But you might ask me, well, what about Richard Dawkins, Timon? I mean, Richard Dawkins is the world's leading atheist. And you might say, when Richard Dawkins looks at creation, he doesn't see a creator, he sees the marvel of natural selection. To be quite honest, Timon, when I look at creation, I see the same thing. How do you explain that? Well, Paul actually explains this in verse 18. Look at verse 18 again. He says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. The word there, suppress, means to hold down. You see, it is possible for someone to know something is true and yet suppress it and yet hold it down because they don't want to face it. The most graphic example of this that I've heard recently is Steve Jobs. Now, Steve Jobs was the creator and founder of Apple Computers. He was one of them and he was the brainchild behind the iPad and the iPhone and the iPod. But unfortunately for Steve, last year he ended up dying from cancer. But here's the thing that I heard that he actually didn't have to. He went to the doctor and the doctors told him that his form of cancer was treatable, that if he started chemo and if he got treatment, that he would be all right. But uh, he suppressed the truth. He was too busy running his company and developing gadgets and thinking differently. And so he tried to treat himself through alternative medicines and diet. However, the problem with suppressing the truth is that the truth is the truth and eventually the truth catches up with everyone. By the time Steve Jobs went to his doctor because he was feeling the symptoms of cancer, it was too late. One preacher that I often listen to is Matt Chandler and one of the things that Matt has said really has stuck with me. He says he can't understand why atheists get so upset with God. Why, why has Richard Dawkins spent his whole life campaigning against God? Chandler says that he doesn't campaign against unicorns. He doesn't write books on the implausibility of unicorns. Why? Because he doesn't believe they exist. Why have such a great reaction to something that you don't think exists? Because maybe your statement of God's non-existence actually demonstrates that you're having to hold the truth down. You're having to suppress the truth. So people are without excuse. We are not ignorant, rather we are disobedient. But Paul goes on to tell us a second reason why God is angry and it's found in verse 21. Paul says in verse 21, For although they knew God, they did not honour him as God or give thanks to him. God has made all people, they are his, 
And he created them to worship him and honor him. But instead of honoring him and giving thanks, it leads to a devastating spiral. Look down in your Bibles. Look down in verse 21. It says, we become futile in our thinking. Our foolish hearts become darkened. Look at verse 22. We become proud. It says, we we claim to be wise, but we are fools. And in verse 23, we end up replacing God. It says in verse 23, they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. And this is why God is so angry. Because even though we know He exists, we don't honour Him as God. And in fact, we replace Him. G.T. Chesterton, a very famous English journalist, once said this. He said, when people stop believing in God, they don't believe in nothing, they believe in anything. And that is why you can go to anywhere in the world. And you go anywhere in the world at any time in world history and you won't find industry in every place. You won't find great acclamation of wealth or great places of learning. But I tell you what you will find in every place in the world. You'll find places of worship, shrines, altars, mosques, churches. Even in Australia where we suppress the truth, we build these Greek big cathedrals and come and worship young men who kick around pigskins. You see, God is angry because we don't honour him as God and in fact we replace him. Now you might say, why is God so angry at that? Is God some sort of egomaniac that he's so upset at being replaced? Well, he is the creator of all things, so I do believe that he has a right, okay, to be honoured. But I believe there is an even deeper reason and it has to do with us with what happens to us when we replace him. Look again carefully in verse 23. Paul says, they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images. They exchanged. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for created things. God is so angry because that is such a poor exchange. That is such a poor trade. It's like trading your BMW for a Datsun 180B. It's a poor trade. God created us to enjoy Him and His glory. And just think about it for a second. Do you enjoy created things? Who here enjoys a good cup of coffee in the morning? All right? Oh, man, it's great to enjoy that. Who here enjoys bacon and eggs for breakfast when their wives allow them to eat that? Yes, it's great. You know, who enjoys going for a walk with a friend, like a good friend, who you just have a great deep talk with? Who enjoys that? We all do. And in created things, we get this taste of joy. But how much greater is the joy of knowing the creator of those things. If we get little bits of joy in created things, then he must be even more glorious and great to enjoy. And this is why God is so angry, because we've exchanged it. We've traded the glory of knowing the immortal God for worshipping and serving created things. Paul expands this concept in verse 25. Look in verse 25. He says, 
They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. I love that about Paul. That as he is writing, he can't help but worship. You see that? He's so into it. He was blessed forever. Amen. He's into worship as he's writing this. But do you notice Paul says that people exchange, when people are building their life around the truth that God exists and that he is glorious and worshipping God, they have to build their lives around something. And you have to build your life around something. And so you'll build your life around a lie. And many people build their lives around lies. Like fulfillment is found in sexual conquests. Many guys, young men, believe that lie. They build their whole life around that, that they're just trying to find the next sexual conquest. Many young women build their lives around the lie that beauty, if I'm beautiful, then I'm worth something. It's a lie. Many men build their lives around the idea if I just rise up in my work and become valued in my sphere and become powerful in my sphere of influence, then I'm something. It's a lie. And that is why God is so upset. It's because He loves us and He created us for so much more than that. And he created you for so much more than that. So this is Paul's diagnosis of humanity. We are under the wrath of God. We're not ignorant of God. We are disobedient. We refuse to honour God and we've replaced him. We exchange the joy of him for worshipping and serving creative things. Now I know this is not a pretty picture. It's not a pretty diagnosis. But as I said in the introduction, unless we get the diagnosis right, we can't get the cure right either. But this message is not going to get any better for a while. Because this disease that we have leads to devastating consequences for the human condition. And Paul points out two devastating consequences of us replacing God. First, Paul points out the effect that replacing God has on our humanity, the effect that replacing God has on us as people. He says that when we replace God, it affects our hearts. Look down in verse 25. Paul says this, Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonouring of their bodies among themselves. Here Paul is teaching what in fact the whole Bible affirms, namely that your choices come out of your heart. That what you choose to do actually comes from your desires. Uh, Let's just say for a second, I've got a picture here, that I had a Big Mac here this morning and I also had some KFC. Alright? Now put up your hand if you would choose the Big Mac. Alright? Put up your hand if you would choose the KFC. Put up your hand if you would choose neither. All right. You see, why did some of you choose Big Mac over KFC? And why did some of you choose KFC over Big Mac? And why did some of you not choose it at all? Because your choices come out of your desires, out of your heart. And Paul says that when we replace God, it affects the desires of our heart. Now, Paul points out that the enslavement of the heart is evident in no greater place than in the realm of our sexuality. The most powerful desires 
that probably everybody in this room has is sexual desire, apart from children. And God has made it that way. Sexual desire is a beautiful thing. Sexual desire is supposed to drive us towards marriage. It's supposed to drive us towards uniting our lives with another person in covenant faithfulness for as long as we live. But when we replace God and refuse to honour Him, our sexual desires get out of control and our lustful hearts, look in verse 25, are given over to impurity for the degrading of our bodies. Instead of our sexual desires driving us towards having a healthy relationship with our wife or our husband, our sexual desires drive us towards pornography, infidelity and all other forms of sexual sin. That's what that word impurity means. And our sexual desires can get so distorted, listen up right here, that for some the unthinkable happens. Verse 26 and verse 27. That we exchange natural relations for unnatural ones. Women are inflamed with lust for women. Men can be inflamed with lust for men. Now that is unthinkable for Paul because it demonstrates how out of control our enslaved hearts can become. Because for Paul... Well, for us, it should be obvious. Biologically, woman was made for man. Man was made for woman. Now, as I came to this point in my sermon, I wrestled all week long because, as you can probably know, this is a hot topic in our society at the moment. And I knew that there might be some of you here who are struggling with same-sex attraction. And I also knew that I don't have enough time today to really do justice to this topic of same-sex attraction and homosexuality and I promise you in the future we'll do an evening service where we will talk about this in much greater depth. And I also knew that Christians have been very cruel in their communication and I want to represent Jesus who was a friend of sinners. And I know, but I also know, what the Bible teaches. And I have to be faithful to the Bible because, as I said in the introduction, unless we get the problem right, we won't get the cure right. I want to share with you now three sources or ways that people have viewed same-sex attraction and how I believe Paul views same-sex attraction. Many Christians have said that same-sex attraction is just an issue of choice, that people choose to be attracted to the same sex. My problem with that is that I've sat with people and they have wept as they've told me how this has affected their life and how they could choose to do something else, choose different desires, they would. And like all of us, we have desires, but of course we have a choice to do, we have a choice of how we act on those desires. And there's a difference. Other Christians have said that same-sex attraction is an issue of environment. 
that people develop same-sex attraction because they grow up in an environment with a passive father and an overbearing mother. However, I've known people who come from good, godly, Christian families who struggle with this same issue. The homosexual lobby, on the other hand, says that same-sex attraction is an issue of biology, that people are attracted to the same sex because that's the way they are made, biologically. However, did you know that there is no good proof for this? When you actually research this, you can't find any proof for this. And there have been actually cases of identical twins where one twin struggles with same-sex attraction and the other doesn't, and they share the same DNA. How do you explain it? See, Paul has a completely different view. He views same-sex attraction as coming from the way that we have replaced God. And now our hearts have been enslaved to sin. He views it as an example of how off course our desires have become. It is sin. It demonstrates how sinful our hearts are. But what I want you to know here in this room, if you are struggling with same-sex attraction, that there is not a person in this room, myself included, who doesn't struggle with a sinful heart, with sinful desires. And the question will be, what are you going to do with those desires? How are you going to act upon those desires? And there is an antidote to a sinful heart and we're going to discuss that in a few moments. So when you replace God, it affects the desires of your hearts. But it also affects the attitudes of your mind. Look in verse 28. Paul says this. He says that when we replace God, God gives us over to a debased mind. The word debased means to lower the quality. Our minds were created to love God and to love other people. But our attitudes are lowered. In fact, Paul lists 21 things in those verses. 21 things that come out of a debased mind and none of them are pretty. So when you replace God, it affects the desires of your heart. It affects the attitudes of your mind. But it completely rearranges your moral conscience. Notice in verse 32, Paul says, Though they know the righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. You see, the way God has hardwired human beings is that not only do they have a heart out of which the choices come, but they also have a conscience, a moral center. And that conscience, the conscience, was intended to inform your heart and guard your heart so that you would make right choices, right choices that would honor God and bring joy in your life. And God was the one to whom your conscience was to feel accountable. That is why the Bible says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. But when we replace God and disobey God and refuse to honour Him, our consciences no longer guard our hearts. We become enslaved to our desires. We end up doing whatever our darkened hearts want. And here is the problem for us, is that Paul says that God has written the law of God on our consciences that our hearts are enslaved in choosing sin. So we have this restlessness within this. 
This is why the Bible teaches that there is no rest for the wicked. What that means is not that people who are wicked can't sleep necessarily, but there is this deep restlessness within people because their conscience tells them one thing and their hearts are desiring another thing and they're at war with one another. Deep restlessness. And what can happen and what does happen is people harden their heart to the voice of their conscience. And over time, as they harden their heart, verse 32 happens. They no longer see things as wrong and they give approval to others who do wrong. But when you harden your heart, you become hard. You become impersonal, unable to feel, less than human. What a devastating consequence. So Paul says the effect on us as human beings is devastating. We have enslaved hearts, debased minds. Our moral centres have been rearranged. But that is only the first devastating consequence on human beings. You're probably thinking it can't get any worse than this, but there is a second even more sobering and devastating consequence. Please listen up. You see, there are eternal consequences for replacing God. Do you notice something in this passage? Three times. Three times it says, God gave them up. Verse 24, God gave them up. Verse 26, God gave them up. Verse 28, God gave them up. These devastating consequences on effects on humanity, enslaved hearts, debased minds, and moral bankruptcy are a demonstration of God's judgment. You see, to have God, the one from whom every perfect and good gift come from, give up on you, it's the most devastating thing. It's like God says, if you won't drink from my streams of living water and you want to drink from the toilet, then I will let you. If you want to do that, then I will let you go. I will hand you over. And that is why we as Christians, as we look out into our country and we see these things in full HD, as we see the enslavement of the heart, as we see people with debased minds, as we see it written into our laws that people are improving of sin, We should be shocked. We should be on our knees asking God, please don't give up on us. Please send your reviving presence. Please send the reviving spirit to come and awaken us. Don't give up on us, God. Because to have God give up on you is the most devastating thing, the one from whom every good and perfect gift comes from. To have him give up on you is the most devastating thing ever. However, it gets even worse because God doesn't just give up on us immediately, but there is a day coming when if you don't repent, he will give up on you eternally. Over in the next chapter, In chapter 2, verse 5, he says this, 
But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. You see, there is a day when you will stand before God and it gives me no pleasure to say this, it doesn't. It gives God no pleasure to do this because he takes no delight in the destruction of the wicked and he created human beings for so much more. He created them to enjoy him and love him forever. But there is a day if you don't repent where he will hand you over. If you say, God, I don't want you, I replace you, then he will give you what you want and will judge you for all eternity. And you will be cut off from the life-giving presence of the living God. (laughs) It's devastating. It's absolutely heart-wrenching. And you Christians should feel it more. And you don't. (laughs) And I don't. And what is wrong with us? What is wrong with us? So this is the diagnosis of Paul. God's anger burns against us. We are ignorant. We're not ignorant. We're disobedient. We've refused to honour him and we've replaced him. We've re- We've exchanged the glory of knowing him for created things and the consequences are devastating. We have enslaved hearts, debased minds, rearranged consciences and God has given up on us and there is a day coming when he will give up on us eternally. So is there any hope for the human condition? Is there any hope? The only hope, the only hope is actually found in verse 18. You didn't see it, but you should have seen it. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. Here we are, human beings. We're suppressing the truth, even though God has revealed himself in the created things. We're we're suppressing it by our unrighteousness. We have minds that don't perceive the truth, darkened hearts, enslaved hearts. But you know what? God is so gracious that he sends his gospel. And you know what the gospel first reveals? It first reveals the wrath of God. And if you became a Christian, the way you became a Christian is that first what was revealed to you was the wrath of God. Your heart was opened, your mind was opened, and so you saw God's anger, his just anger, and how you had replaced him. And I can't do that in your life. I can't convince you. We can't convince other people to be Christians. I was reading Martin Lloyd-Jones this week and he was saying about how he was preaching at his church on a Sunday night and a man from his village came in who was a known man who was a drunkard and at the end he saw he was very moved but Lloyd-Jones saw him the next day on Monday and this guy came up to Lloyd-Jones and said, you almost got me last night. You almost got me. And Lloyd-Jones said this, if what you experienced last night didn't last for 24 hours, then it's not worth much. You see, the way we become a Christian is by the Spirit of God when the Gospel comes convicting us of our sin and our unrighteousness before a holy God. You need to be praying parents for your children 
without have that revelation. If you've got family, you need to be praying for them that they will have that revelation. That when the gospel comes to them, it comes with power and with full conviction. What's the conviction that that's talking about? It's talking about the conviction that there is a day of wrath. You see, if it's just self-esteem, if it's just prosperity, then it's still all about me. But if it's about God and the fact that I've replaced him, then it's about him. But here's the other great truth that the gospel comes with, verse 17. It is revealed that there is a righteousness from God. That that wrath that is deserving on us was placed on Jesus on the cross. The only hope for the human condition is the gospel in which that anger, that just anger was placed on Jesus And now through belief in him and belief in the gospel, you can have a changed heart. Your heart can be changed. Your mind can be renewed. Your conscience can be reframed so that you worship and serve and love the living God and that's true life. That's true humanity. That's what we're about, helping experience people experience real life. That's what life is about. Loving and enjoying God himself. That's the gospel. See, we're going to sing a song in a few moments and it's got great words. It says, This is the power of the cross that Christ became sin for us. He bore the wrath, took the blame and we stand forgiven at the cross. We're going to finish this uh, moment morning of worship with communion because on the night before Jesus was crucified he said Father if it be your will take your cup from me now what he was meaning by that was the cup that he felt was going to be poured on him was the cup of God's wrath that's what happened on the cross is the wrath of God was poured out on God the Son and he bore the penalty of our sin. So I want to challenge you this morning, I want to make two challenges as we come to the communion table. If you've never experienced the grace of God for yourself, what are you doing? The word of God has been preached this morning. The wrath of God has been revealed to you from heaven through the word of God. Respond. Come to God. Don't do it because you want to please me. Do it because you want to know God. Come to God. Repent. Turn to him. You could do that in your spot, right there in your place. If you are a Christian here today, you might be replacing God still in your life with created things. And here's the thing, is that you can be thinking that God doesn't care because you did it the first time, right? And that first time you did it, you didn't sleep. But then you did it a week later and you're able to sleep a bit. And a week later you slept again and, and now it's no big deal to you. And you think that God doesn't care. But actually, you know what that is? That's the discipline of God. 1 Corinthians 6 uses this phrase, as Paul says, 
He handed over a sinful man for the destruction of his flesh. God might be making you, Christian, drink from the toilet so that you'll realize eventually, what am I doing? What am I doing drinking from the toilet? There's the streams of living water that I can drink from. So as we come to the communion table, I want us as Christians to ask ourselves, in what ways are we replacing God in our lives? And you really, we really all need to ask ourselves this firm question, is why doesn't sin bother us a whole lot more? Verse 20, verse 32, they approve of those things. Why isn't our moral conscience a lot more sensitive? Maybe we as Christians have replaced God. All right. I'm going to ask some guys now to come forward and uh, as they do, just uh, the singing team. I'm going to ask the stewards to come and they're going to hand out, and I want them to hand out the, both the wine and the bread at the same time this morning. And I want you to just hold them together. Listen to this song and worship God through this song. Listen to what the words say about the power of the cross. Search your heart and see if you have been replacing God. And then we're going to share communion together.